welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. I'm Tay. Let us indulge in this Christmas game, everybody. It is a Christmas game. Yeah, yeah. And and I'd say like the first thing I want to throw back and forth in terms of this game, we're talking about the Green Knight, and I want to know, is the movie about the Green Knight, or is it about Sir Gawain, or is he the Green Knight? Ooh, throwing out the big questions <laughs> yeah. early. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I, like right, right off of from uh, when we talked about Dead Poet Society last time, trying to figure out if that was about Robin Williams' character or is about the kids. I think this is always a nice way to dig into these things. The original epic poem was called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Why would director David Lowry call this just the Green Knight? Well, I think that is really like you're headed straight for the heart of the what we're going to talk about today and uh i think it's worth talking about what david lowry has done up to this point in his career Mm -hmm. because i think that helps us get to the root of the question so lowry's had a pretty expansive career um he's you know he hasn't just directed he's produced he's written Mm -hmm. uh he's been a cinematographer and he's worked as an editor and all these things kind of come through in the green knight but uh, one thing that really stands out is his ability to transform anything that he's working on. There's always something about lore or myth or the legend of a character at play in all of his work. Uh, and that doesn't mean that he's talking about ju- he's doing just fantasy films. He's also done a couple Western style or uh, like there's a Bonnie and Clyde style film in the Body Saints, which is pretty good. Uh, but Lowry has always had a fascination with just diving into myth and if in this case it came in the form of fantasy so it's a little bit more on the nose and we can really dissect it yeah yeah i think he's i mean if you've seen any interviews with him stuff like that like he's an incredibly intelligent guy obviously but um he's also frankly like he's a he's a big dork he's a nerd yeah full-on nerd there's a there's a great uh like the vanity series um notes on a scene which we've talked about before with other directors he does uh one of the best scenes from this movie in it will link it. And he talks about how these kind of like chivalric traditions and Arthurian lore is very important to him. I think he's genuinely interested and passionate about stories that can inform how we feel about the way that we live our lives. Yeah. So to go back to your initial question, do I think that this movie should have had Sir Gawain in the title? Mm. I don't think that it's necessary because I don't think that the movie is even about Sir Gawain as much as it is about deconstructing the myth of the Green Knight mm-hmm. and what the moral lesson of the Green Knight is because yeah. ultimately that's what's persisted through, persisted through time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Green Knight is, I believe it's a 14th century story mm-hmm. yeah. uh, by Anonymous. Yeah, they never figured out who wrote it. There's only one copy of the poem. It survived a massive fire, and it's and it's still somehow, still somehow around. It's at the British Library now. So a text like this is just was just so ripe for the picking for someone like Lowry to mm-hmm. take uh, to take up. I think that he was a perfect director for this, and it seems like you know, like I'm not the only one who thinks that about his abilities to kind of uh, convey these kinds of stories. Disney is also reached out now twice he's currently working on the updated peter pan film called wendy or peter peter and wendy that sounds right something like that um but he also uh digging or diving back into his career but he also did pete's dragon for them Mm -hmm. which is i have not seen actually but people say it's one of the better disney live action remakes yeah and and it looks like it has all the potential to be that uh, and i'm coming from the perspective of someone who hasn't really enjoyed most of them Mm -hmm. minus maybe maleficent Okay. Yeah, like, I, like I think one. I think Lowry really has the the both the skill set and the attitude to do something like that justice, right? Like he's he's a a very skilled director and technician, and like you know leader of a film crew. Obviously, he knows how to put all the pieces in place, but he's enthusiastic about these types of things. I think getting him to take on, you know, a child story is a version of like all fantasy, right? Like they, I think there's a lot of shared DNA there. So I wouldn't be surprised that his Pete's Dragon would would probably uh fairly engage with the story instead of look down on it or consider it to be something less than because it was a kid's story right? I, I totally agree it seems like he'd have the ability to kind of uh, convey that sense of magic that you need in a kid's story 
while also, like you said, it, it kind of reminds me of how we talked about Sam Raimi back on our Drag Me to Hell mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah. He kind of has this excitement on set that is so toxic or is so uh not toxic it's It's so uh contagious good yes it's contagious (laughs) and on a set when you have a director who is kind of geeking out about Mm -hmm. everything that you're doing in such detail it's it's so it like fuels the fire on a whole film set it's intoxicating and you really want to be a part of whatever that director is doing so when he talks about these things and we know just from I don't know, I watched maybe like 10 interviews with him over the past week. Yeah. Uh, just how excited he gets about Arthurian myth. And yeah. that's, uh, I can't imagine that his crew would thought it, would have felt any different or been able to feel any different around mm-hmm. him. Well, and I think uh, it's also, it's it's interesting that, you know, for someone to be this excited about Arthurian stuff, but it's not Merlin casting spells, there are no right. dragons, there's very little slaying, um, to put it kind of in a clunky manner in this movie. <laughs> right? Like this, I think one of the reasons this poem and this story lasted is because it's a deconstruction and it's a denial of so many of the things that make other epic Arthurian stories what they are, right? Which are always about triumph yep. over an evil or a beast. This, there's so much more interiority in this, and there's also it's so applicable to everyone else. Like we have no dragons to slay in our day to day life, unless you're speaking metaphorically. Um, but the things that Gawain grapples with in this story are the things that everyone will always grapple with, and it, that's why I mean there's a lot to be shared with our discussion about Dead Poet Society too. It was kind of just by chance that we're talking about two movies that yeah. are really obsessed with recognizing your imminent doom. And trying to do better in in spite of it. But I think like what you just said there makes sense. You know, these kinds of ideas have existed in humans for so long that that's why these such an old story can matter and have resonance in today's day and age without these uh, very grand scale overarching moral lessons. I don't think a story like this even has a place in today's society. Like like, Like you kind of said, I don't think that if this movie was about uh, Arthur and Merlin and slaying dragons. We just got another Guy Ritchie King Arthur on our yeah, hands here. Which like just made the Knights of the Round Table seem like a bunch of like chav bros, right? Who are like strolling around uh, Camelot and like beating people up and being cool and like I don't not a lot of staying power there. And <laughs> I don't know for sure because I'm not overly familiar with original Arthurian myth and legend, but a lot of the stories kind of very similar to how we like how Disney kind of whitewashes these pretty some some pretty insane fairy tale stories uh, yeah, that have Hans, much Hans Christian Andersen stuff is way weirder than than Disney makes it right like they, yes they they did a lot of trimming they they did a lot of uh, story story editing <laughs> yeah yeah and I think a lot of Arthur like stories and films about King Arthur are kind of washed in the same way they don't have some of the darker elements I don't like because i know one of the main things is that lancelot had an affair with uh guinevere with guinevere yeah and that's something that's very rarely discussed i think that was like kind of the whole movie of that like early 2000s one yeah i, I think that's right but yeah. other than that story i don't think that any of them kind of want like allow some of the darker elements to enter into that story because they they're trying to, to be, make you know, them fanfare great, great men they want something aspirational right you want to just think like yeah, there are knights. There's nothing wrong with what they're doing. They live by a code. You know, they 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 slay dragons and they stop bad guys that kill barbarians. The end. There was no shades of gray in what they were doing. Yeah, and this movie is... All gray. <laughs> well, all green. We'll, we'll say all yeah. green. All yeah. shades of green. And and on that note, just a, a, a little full circle in the beginning chunk of our episode here... Uh, one thing that I like to think about the title in the Green Knight is perhaps it does refer to Gawain in the use of the term green like a new knight, right? Right. Like I, right. Like, I like that. It's, it's a little That's cheeky. a good reading. Um, and you'll see, we'll talk about some stuff that Lowry has said about this film. I think he has a good sense of humor about it, too. Like, he's not, for, for as enthusiastic as he is about the lore, he's not pretentious about it he is not pretentious but i one of the questions i was going to ask you is do you think that in some people's opinions this movie could come off as pretentious because i've heard it i've heard the term thrown around a bit 
let's i'd say let's dig in I'll, I'll let me get in the description and then i think we'll dig into that because i think it, it will be very easy to get into many different long reeling discussions so let's right on let's, okay uh, let's, let's do let's that put a little signpost here and, and I'll, I'll we'll cover our bases and then we'll get into how pretentious this movie may be and i think what it tells us about the modern sort of film criticism dialogue so the green knight is an adaptation of the epic arthurian poem sir gawain and the green knight it tells the tale of gawain as he embarks on a quest to make a name for himself in the eyes of King Arthur's court and all of Britain. Uh, the movie stars Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, and Ralph Ineson, and uh, was written and directed by David Lowry, and first hit theaters July 30th, 2021. It's available to rent on Google Play right now. Um, and I would say I picked up a Blu-ray of this, and just for or, uh, fair warning... It does come with special features, like all Blu-rays should, but they're only accessible through the iTunes store, which is immensely frustrating to have to redeem a digital code. I had to log into iTunes because I don't who uses iTunes anymore, and uh, to watch. Uh, they, there's an hour-long sort of like set footage documentary, which was nice to watch, but again, it should be on a disc, um, especially if we're paying for physical media these days. Yeah, as someone who doesn't have iTunes anymore, I. Mm-hmm will not be making the same purchase yeah. even though i thought this movie looked amazing on your blu-ray yeah. tim it did uh, it's a it's a it's a great transfer um, yes it's fantastic to I see this you'll wait on the criterion or for for a different, a different production house to put it out i ex- just based on knowing like how much behind the scenes i was able to see through youtube videos mm-hmm. i know that there's a lot more that they could add to it full-on blu-ray yeah. and i'm not gonna let itunes control that kind no. of thing and i know i that sounds petty but yeah just not gonna that's not my bag yeah so back to the idea of whether this is pretentious and how it's received by modern audiences this movie had a budget of 50 million which is insane yeah it's they stretch for, that money a lot like if you just if you haven't watched this movie and if our discussion kind of turns you off of it because i do think this is this is a type of movie that is its own type it's not super accessible in a number of ways it doesn't operate like a normal narrative it doesn't have a regular pace not a four quadrant film yeah not a four quadrant film um so if you decide that it's not really your thing i would definitely recommend checking out like on youtube like the round table scene or or just like check out a scene here or there and you'll get an idea of the extremely high caliber caliber of production design um, it's really impressive, but yeah, it debuted to 6.8 million domestically, coming in behind Jungle Cruise, and it dropped 62% in the second week. People will argue that it is too much of an art house movie. It is too pretentious. It's too difficult to understand. Um, and the thing for me about that is, I certainly at one time I also had difficulty sort of engaging with stuff that did not give me a clear narrative or clear conceit and I have found it to be very rewarding to try to engage with these things if you go in with the idea that there is no right answer it's about your experience and it's about what you like to read into it and and I think that makes for a a very sort of freeing experience as an audience member right like I think this is one of the movies that really shows you what's going on in our modern film discourse which is so much this explained the ending of the green knight explained the end i mean there, there were those videos on youtube there's so many there's yeah. so many of those videos almost as many as i would say like the the high watermark for bad takes on trying to explain a movie that isn't supposed to be thought about that way is annihilation oh annihilation right yeah annihilation was like that some too. of the worst takes of being like here's exactly how the shimmer works and here's what the ending scene means when i think annihilation really wears on its sleeve that it's a very shallow metaphor about trauma and there's not much else going on. I very much agree. Um, and I think Alex Garland, who wrote that script, would probably agree with you over 99.9% of the fan yeah. theories about what his ending means. Mm. But again, I do think like we just we have this expectation as audience members. And I don't know if this has changed because, again, I haven't been seeing movies for 50 years or 60 years. Be something I, I should ask like my, my dad or something about that. Um, but I, I really love the idea in this that I think it carries the torch forward that the original epic poem had which was that scholars are still arguing over what everything meant in it um it has translations from middle english to modern english J.R.R. tolkien did a very famous one and 
There are still ongoing academic debates about what the Green Knight means, what the color green means, what the girdle uh, means. And I think this movie carries that forward in, in a number of ways, denying you an obvious answer. On almost all fronts, yeah. This movie is not about easy answers. Yeah. And, uh, and, and giving you enough texture for if you want to say, if you want to take the most basic reading and say, this is a movie about Gawain's mother forcing him to become a man. Right. You can. The evidence is there. Yes. But if you want to talk about this movie as being, this is, this is a matter of reckoning with death. And and nothing else, right? It's not really a matter of becoming a man. It doesn't have to be a coming of age story. It's a story about the human experience. It's it, it that's there too, right? Yeah, the, you could do so many readings of this movie. So it's almost futile to kind of go over all of them. Mm. But you could call this a road movie. You could call this a coming of age movie because those elements exist. It's about a character's journey, and ultimately this story fits that. But also, there's so much more about deconstructing the simplicity of those ideas that's Mm -hmm. going on in this film. It doesn't simply follow any one of these uh, overdone formulas. Mm -hmm. It actually has much more to say about the journey itself rather than than simply following the beats of a given story that's like this usually. Yeah, and I think when you can sort of engage with that idea that you will not arrive at a correct answer, I think it makes the discussion a lot more interesting. Yeah, you and I were just talking right before the podcast how much more enjoyable the movie has been since the first viewing. Yeah, yeah, this was kind of the one, like, I saw this with uh, with a couple friends in theaters, and we have a what I would argue is probably a bad habit of after a movie, we go outside of the theater and we all stand around and we talk about it. And I do think that, like, that has led to a bit of an expectation that you're going to have a take on a movie and not all movies you can have a take on when you're just digesting them like that. I think green Knight was the best example where we, it was, it was me and, and and two of our friends and we came out and we were all kind of like, it was really cool. It looked really cool. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It took a while to digest. And then when I rewatched it for this episode, I found way more in it and parts of it, like the ending that I felt that I was unsure about or unsatisfied with, really locked into place for me the ending was much better the second time around for me too Mm -hmm. and uh i still have some thoughts on the ending Mm -hmm. but i that i might have changed if it was my movie but you know what all in all i think the second viewing solidified so many things that uh i don't know had that were spinning around in my brain about this being more of a deconstruction more of a commentary on myth itself than Mm -hmm. about uh, like well, kind of like I was just saying, but hitting the given beats of a story like this yeah. of a fantasy tale, yeah. which I'm so happy it didn't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that just lends it more staying power. This is a movie I will think about more often than others that are tied neatly. And and there are other movies that I love, like I'd say like a, a great sort of opposite example is like a very tightly written like thriller or action movie like Mission Possible Fallout. It's it's firing all cylinders. And it is all a matter of um, clear editing. You always know what's going on. You always know where you're at in the story. You always know what the stakes are, things like that. And I think it works really well. But, you know, when I look back on that kind of a movie, I'm just thinking about, like, how well done the action scenes were, where it is from a production style, or, like, how they've sort of evolved the character of um, of Ethan, Ethan Hunt. And to think back on this movie, it's always just like, Oh, there's another thing I had incorporated into my reading about this being about, you know, the natural world. Like if you want to talk about the green Knight as just a, a, an icon of time and nature, right? Like green, green to yellow growth, death, rot. There's that great. I mean, Elisa Vikander has a, has a monologue about all of this. Whilst we're off looking for red, in comes green. Red is the color of lust, but green is what lust leaves behind. In heart, in womb. Green is what is left when order fades, when passion dies, when we die too. Right? They're, whether he represents death or the inevitability of time, or if he's just a 
a stand-in for Morgan Le Fay. All these different things. Lowry gives you all these things that you can keep sort of turning like this image and you see a different angle on it every time you turn it. It's endlessly rewarding and I, I just, uh, I, I really, I like that. And I think... Yeah, la- layers upon layers of meaning. Mm-hmm. And and there's so many things like the scene that we're going to talk about eventually and other scenes, there's a scene where they the, encounter a, a band of giants. And I think it's just there to say like, Gawain's not the center of the world. There are things going on that are way bigger than him. He's a giant to other things as well, right? Like he sort of puts him in his place. And it's a scene that serves nothing else to the rest of the story, I don't, I don't think. Now, I did hear one fun theory that that was because he was tripping on the mushrooms that he found and ate and almost immediately puked back up. That's fair. And so yeah. that scene shortly follows it. Yeah. And so I thought that was a pretty funny yeah. theory. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, you know what? The giant scene for me just kind of fit mentally into the fantasy film that I thought I was walking into. He wanted to let you know you were in, you're in, you're in Avalon. You're in the Arthurian era. Yes. Yeah. It reaffirms that you're not in the world that you are sitting in when you're sitting in that theater. Yeah. You are transported. And the movie did such a good job doing that visually for me, but having the giant scene just kind of was more awe, was more of a sigh for me, like more of like a, just a breath. Like I was like, wow, this is cool. This is like a full on fantasy world. And it also kind of comes at a time in the story where I think things are kind of slowing down and things are have been dark for so long. And then you get this big, bright, vibrant, giant scene that looks mm-hmm. visually stunning. And I thought it was well, really well done. Yeah. Yeah, so there, there's just there's a lot in this story and it's not going to give you any clear answers. But that kind of makes your role as an audience member, I think, more exciting and, and arguably easier in a number of, way, in a number of ways because you can... You can be confident in being like, I, I see it like this, and that's perfectly valid. And I think if you can go in and you can sort of let go of the idea that if something isn't immediately clear, it's not suggesting that you're stupid or you don't know enough about film or you can't analyze it. It's unclear because it's it's allowing you to find yourself in it instead. Right. Yeah, which, which I, I think is great because there's a lot of filmmakers like that. Like almost anything you want to describe as Lynchian is can be read in a number of ways, right? And he's, like, David Lynch has always been very clear, like, why would I explain a movie? The point is that, like, I want the audience to find something in it themselves. And and that's why... You better leave it a mystery. And that is why Lynch's films are so divisive, Mm -hmm. because people love him or they hate him. And he has such a, like, a loyal following because... Mm -hmm. He sticks to his guns and refuses to give direct answers, which I know that there's probably like a growing fan base for these kinds of films in Mm -hmm. some senses, just in the the sense that you don't want to be given all the answers. And so many movies, and specifically TV today, are all about providing you with all the detail and all the answers and all the background of all the characters. Mm -hmm. And... Well, there's, movies... there's just virtually no subtext to like your biggest franchises right now. Right, it's all on its sleeves. So what you, the best you can hope for is like great production. Yeah, great the, there's nothing left right? to interpretation yeah. anymore. So if you are someone who likes movies and wants to be given all the information on a platter, then cinema is at the right point for you right now. Yeah, but there is like a massive group of people that is starting, I think, growing and growing mm-hmm. that is kind of getting tired of this, yeah. and they want more. Uh, and big more ambiguity yeah. in their films and also just not to be told everything yeah leave, just, leave a little bit there like and and you yeah. know you, we have modern filmmakers who are engaged in that kind of thing like uh yorgos lanthimos yeah lord right. yorgos is also kind of fits in this category mm-hmm. i'd say so like he doesn't tell you exactly but again he has so, so specific style that it's hard to compare him otherwise but, exactly um and even like i would say probably the big the most you know conventional movie that i think engaged like this in in the recent era is inception right yeah absolutely i'd say like a little frustrated with that spinning top at the end right it's it's frustration that's grown into some kind of like sick satisfaction in most people i think Mm -hmm. though like a lot of people were definitely angry at the time they just wanted it to be like just tell me it's a dream or it isn't as like that that this is another one like annihilation for me where it's like it should be fairly clear that like 
the most exciting way to end this is not knowing if it's a dream because that's that's the core of the entire arc is you know um Marion Cotillard's character not knowing if it was a dream or not. Exactly. Which kicked off the whole thing. And I will say, if I can find it, it's an old essay by um, a critic that I really like who just goes by Film Crit Hulk. He used to write in all caps and would write in broken grammar like Hulk, but would write a lot about semiotics. And I may have actually brought this guy up on the podcast already at this point. But You've definitely told me about him. Yeah. But um, recently he's gone to full sentences and, and, and normal case. So it's way easier to read because it used to be a little frustrating. But he, it's a great way to learn to, I think, uh, interpret what's being shown on screen. He's great. He's got a great mind for semiotics. And one of his main lessons that he always brings up is the ending is the conceit. The idea that any other part of a movie, it's easier to argue for or against what you think is happening. But the last shot is always undoubtedly intentional. No director ever loses out on creative control of the last shot. That that would be insane. It's all, it's almost always one of the first things they're thinking of in their script. But uh, yeah, the, just the idea that, yeah, like with Inception, and I mean with Green Knight too, like, like the ending is the conceit. We're not covering the ending because we don't do that here. But boy, do I love the ending of this movie so much. <laughs> I liked the two models they had of Dev Patel one of which they light on fire mm-hmm. and one of which they just lob the head off of. Yeah. Both must... I don't know. Maybe they use the same one for both. They looked... I guess you could... Because you could lob the head off and put it back on and light it on fire. It's a... I mean, it's a killer opener. Yes. Right? It's a killer um, opener and then a killer yeah. could have potentially been, should have been closer shot. Well, it, I mean, it depends on how you take the metaphor of someone dragging their finger across the throat and how cheeky can ralph Ineson actually sound because it's not it's not a joke to me i can't believe how how warm and like sort of charming his smile is at the end in that in the the green knight well, makeup with the, the wooden face. actor ralph Ineson yeah. has a tremendously charming smile yeah. but that voice it's yeah. almost like I must obey, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, yeah. you tell me what to do, sir. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I, I love, like, interpreting the ending, the last line. Off with your head. He says, now off with your head, like, like, go with your head, take it and go, like, you're good. Or he drags finger across the throat, and it's a metaphor, he cut his head off and mm-hmm. he's dead, right? But once coming back to the inception argument it the point is it's that it doesn't either. actually yeah. really matter because your character has learned something but more importantly you the audience has learned the value of accepting your fate mm-hmm. and not changing oneself to uh, meet expectations of one's fate yeah uh, and I know that that's kind of like a vague way of summarizing it but we like we said we don't talk about endings too much here and we are going to talk about this idea a bit more when we actually break down our scene mm-hmm so why don't we do that? Yeah, I think it's about time. Okay. So here's my sloppily written <laughs> synopsis. Uh, so our scene today takes place, surprisingly, actually, I can't believe it's this far into the movie, but it's 57.18 into the film and goes to about 104, so it's about a seven-minute scene, for those of you following along. And uh, in this scene, uh, we have Gawain beaten, battered, and mentally defeated as he enters a small, seemingly abandoned cabin. Uh, for a night's rest after dealing with a band of thieves, thieves, bandits. He's awoken to a young girl, and he initially panics, but the young woman, Winifred, mysteriously asks him to help her find her head. And taken aback, initially he does agree to enter a pond to retrieve her head. It should be stated, I guess, if you haven't seen the film, she does have a head at this point Mm -hmm. when she's making the request. Um, but we'll get into the scene and we'll dive into all the details now. So, Tim, why did we pick this scene? So, we picked this scene. There are so many to do. I'd say, like, probably in a perfect world, we would have just picked the, the Christmas Day scene when the Green Knight shows up. But that's the one that Lowry does in the notes on a scene. So, we would have been cheating a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, we picked this scene because it's a great, I think, little mini encapsulation of the ways in which this movie denies the regular expectations of... Uh, fantasy and myth and quests and all these things where you expect there to be a exchange you expect there to be a clear arc expect there to be um true stakes 
none of which there are in, in this thing at all. This is this is um, all good points. Yeah, arguably um, a fruitless quest, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, but the, it, I think the, it, it lends you some interiority to uh, Gawain and where he's at right then. And when we talk about interiority, we're just saying like you're getting inside the character's head, right? Yeah. Like you're allowing to you you can empathize with them a little bit more through this experience or what they're telling you. Interiority is just allows you to get beneath the surface and you understand their state of mind rather than yeah. a character who you're unable to read. Yeah. So I, I think the scene achieves so much of that and also. All on this little miniature scale, like as a as a, a one cell, you know, and then you can go up an order of magnitude and you get the whole movie. It kind of tells you how to watch this movie, even though, I mean, it comes a bit late to serve that role. It's It leads up to the midpoint, which is very important. It's definitely where you've got Gawain really down in the dumps as he goes into this cabin. He had just been robbed of basically everything he was given and needed for his quest. Everything that allowed him to represent himself as a knight, his... Mm-hmm horse his sword his shield yeah. his armor yeah yeah like his is his gauntlets and and uh his the girdle that uh his mother had made for him to protect him yeah and yeah like they had painted the virgin mary on the back of his shield all that he lost it basically in his his first encounter yeah that was right? yeah the first encounter with anybody except mm-hmm. for well he sees barry keegan's character yeah. earlier by himself but then second interaction with immediately them gets gets everything taken from him which once again like we could talk about that scene too and how mm-hmm. that also deconstructs this idea of what a knight's yeah. quest looks like yeah <laughs> uh, these are the things like we were saying initially at the beginning of the podcast that you don't normally include in a fantasy film you don't usually have your character stumble and look this bad you have them kind of slip up and fix their mistake rather quickly in these kinds of stories typically Mm -hmm. uh, because they're your hero and in this film i don't think the point is ever to make gawain feel like your hero yeah no i mean uh one of the main changes from the original poem to this was that he is a knight already in the poem in this he is not knighted um and he also, but everyone refers to him as a knight, right? Right. Or like, really makes it clear that he continues to fail to live up to the standards of being a knight. Right. Um, Winifred in this more than once says, like, a knight should know better or suggests it to, like, at one point he he obviously, she has this great sort of thing where they put her on, on tracks and she sort of glides up to him. Yeah, there's, like, this, like, very ghostly glide. And you see, it's like, Lowry is knows exactly what he's doing he knows, in this scene. He knows ghosts. Yes, he knows <laughs> ghosts. And uh, he like knows that this interaction was going to look ghostly, so he's playing with you, the audience, as well. And uh, maybe we'll just play the audio clip here so as she slides across the floor... Will you help me find it? What are you doing? I was just... Do not touch me. And I should know better. This is the most modern beat of the movie, I'd say. Like, this little comedic part is one of the few things that I say, like, other other than, like, obviously the way it looks and, and the 4K nature and, like, you know, depending on how you're watching it. But so much of the rest of this movie, I think, has a little bit more of a timeless feel in the way that it's edited. This joke is, is a very modern joke. Yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> and once again, just kind of, you're like, yeah, why would he touch her? Yeah. Like even even if it's a ghost, like even if it's rude, a ghost, yeah, right? it's still weird. And if you're a knight, right? <laughs> or if you want to be a knight, after you see her move like that, though, yeah. your instinct as an audience member is to be like, oh, he's got to reach out and like swipe at her face yeah, or yeah. something to see if she's real. Yeah, yeah. And even if she is, like, you still reach out, right? Mm-hmm. But and, no, and that's, that's right, sort of your first hint. Where like I do, I like, I like the idea that up until that point, this really plays out like some form of a damsel needs a knight to help her you know, things like that. And then like, he goes to, I don't know, touch her shoulder, caress her face, something very traditional and classic. And as you heard in the clip, she's, uh, she's not about it, you know, keep your space, you mm-hmm. know, wait for consent, all that kind of stuff. And these are, this is the point of chivalry that Gawain doesn't seem to have. Mm-hmm. He is very much lacking the sense of chivalry and it's almost hard to see at first we don't have that many glimpses of him like kind of failing at being this chivalrous knight until he starts on his quest well it depends on how you're looking at it because again like the reason we picked this movie as a christmas day one he wakes up in a brothel and alicia vikander's first character throws his pants at his face and says christ is born (laughs) 
you can read that as chivalrous still. He could still be a knight <laughs> un- operating like that. And then he chases after and he throws money at her to try to to try to claim her for the day. I don't know if that's fair it's enough. Definitely not chased. No, it's <laughs> and that is part of being a knight. Yeah, but you're you're right. Like there isn't like. I think like some of the other things like the being in a brothel, you're just kind of like, it's medieval. Like, of course the Knights, you know, you're going to buy it. But this one, when you don't know how much is specific to his character. Yeah. With Winifred, like he tries to touch her and she's like, why would you do that? And then later in this scene, when he finds out what she wants from him, he says, what will you give me in exchange? And this one's not played for laughs. It's actually kind of tragic. If I go in there and find it, what would you offer me in exchange? Why would you ask me that? Why would you ever ask me that? Like, what kind of person are you where I'm asking you to do this thing for me and you're only thinking about what you get in return? Yeah. Right? Which, again, I think, like, quests more commonly, I mean, especially, like, in terms of the video game definition of quests, but that's informed by movies and by fantasy where the idea is you do this thing for this mysterious lady and she'll give you a great sword or she'll give you a blessing or she'll cast a spell you know you'll get something for something and there's arguably nothing of real value achieved over the course of this little mini quest he pays respect i say more more than nothing in the end you just i guess like because you don't even he doesn't really get a chance to really prove that he learned this chivalrous lesson Mm -hmm. after this scene because he kind of continues on a downward spiral after it but you get the scent like at least, like, some of the ground rules have been laid down for Gawain at this point. After this scene, you kind of are, you become very much aware as an audience member that he is not a good knight in any, like, he's not good at really any of the facets of being a knight. Yeah, he wakes up in the brothel, uh, but he does step up in an act of bravery in many ways, attack, like, uh, kills the Green Knight seemingly. But It's a pretty low bar for bravery. It is. <laughs> But would you step into that circle with That's that guy? He's a big, big, scary, big, scary dude with Ralph Ineson's voice, right? Yeah, I would. Yeah. I, I, there's a lot of other more brave men in that room. Mm-hmm. So, like, there are elements about Gawain to this point that kind of allow your brain to trick you into thinking that this is still the night hero that I know. But after the scene, it becomes very evident that he is not. No, I'd say the in only any, real... on any level. The only real achievement in terms of his character and story is that the beginning of the scene, he says he's going home. He's so defeated. We we were talking about this. We were rewatching the scene before we started. Dev, Dev Patel's performance is ludicrously like well realized. It's it's a light touch, I'd say. It's a lot of like him repeating "I'm going home" and his voice breaking or realizing that when he asks for something in exchange, like he should be ashamed of that, like. It's a very deft performance. Yeah, there's a lot of beats that he's hitting. Uh, and uh, the actress in the scene, who I can't believe we didn't... Yeah, um, uh, Aaron Kellyman. Aaron Kellyman like, matches him pretty much beat for beat in this mm-hmm. scene, too. She's firing on all cylinders and is sassy, funny, tragic. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on in yeah. these little moments between these two characters. And the scene is not long. Like The interactions are not long. No. There's just a lot at play, and a lot of that comes back to this idea that we've been talking about throughout the podcast about deconstruction and kind of defeating the idea of what we think is going to happen in a scene like this. So there's a lot of beats that are unpredictable and surprising, mm-hmm. but it also like turns it like turns a mirror back at you, the viewer, and say, why is it surprising that all these beats happen? you're clearly coming into this with all these preconceptions about what a fantasy film entails, and this is not that. Mm-hmm. So you are just as foolish as the knight, or as Gawain in this scene, in yeah. many ways. Yeah, showing you that this is not going to operate the way that you think. Um, what this scene, I think, achieves in terms of the story and his character is that he starts by saying, I'm going home, and then at the end of it decides he's not going home. He is going yes. to continue. so that is a change. He sort of, this scene gets him through this long dark night and he, it also he does get um the green knight's axe in the end well i think that's the turning Doesn't point right like an exchange right like i think there's there's it's a one of the more difficult to interpret things i think uh about this movie is that Barry yeah why Hogan, do you want to explain the transition of the axe yeah yeah okay yeah we, we probably should so essentially i yeah we haven't talked about this yet over the course of this scene she she asks him to help her find her head, which is, which she had been beheaded by a spurned lover, 
who took her head and threw it in the nearby pond. And he dives into the pond and he finds her skull and brings it back uh, and finds her her um, headless body um, decomposing in the bed that he first lay in. And he goes to put it back and realizes that the, the skull that he's holding is her head and it speaks to him and then it becomes the skull again and he puts it back. And it, it's a phenomenal transition where he puts the skull and lays it to rest and sort of respects Winifred. And then the morning light just comes through like over the course of like five seconds it's a phenomenally well-lit scene. And then as he's leaving, he sees that the, the ax is there, which had been stolen from him. So he at least gets that back. But as a midpoint or leading up to the midpoint, this is sort of him recommitting himself to this quest. A second wind. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just by doing this, a small favor of respect again, cause I, he didn't save her life. She's already dead, right? He's not going to get, anything special from it he was not promised like i have your axe i'll give it back if you if you get if you get my skull for me so so you think that it was the act of generosity or kindness whatever you want to call it to went towards winifred towards winifred that reinvigorated the quest rather than the axe reappearing i think he was it's there's again there's no evidence to tell you either way because there's no right answer i really feel like it's the daylight coming through. It's him getting through, you know, the dark night of the soul. Um, yes, no, that's fair. Right? Where I think he would have been recommitted to the quest already. I think he was on his way out and he sees the axe. I'd have to double check how they actually edit that sequence of the axe appearing and him seeing it. But I think he would have continued the quest even without the axe. Okay. Yeah. And it should be mentioned that, so St. Winifred is is a, a real saint for whatever that means uh she's a welsh martyr who yeah was, this is a really interesting yeah, story actually she was, you know according to the lore she was murdered by a man who loved her when she told him that she intended to become a nun and uh her head was thrown uh into into a pond or it's that where her head was left became a wellspring that now you can still you can visit this site um holy well it's a pilgrimage site in in Wales that you can visit, and people believe it has healing powers. And I think that le- leads right into this too. He's really broken. He's really hurt, like on a, in a spiritual, mental level, right? Because yeah. they don't really the the robbers don't injure him. They just take everything he has. Well, yeah, I say beaten, battered, bruised yeah. mentally, mm-hmm. but uh, he's not wearing too many injuries on no. him. But I mean, this this sort of quest, he goes into the into the wellspring. He's he's healed to an extent by this to the to the the point that he would continue. And I, once again, I don't know original Arthurian myth, but this to me feels so much more like a, the darker side of older myth, mm-hmm. in the sense that like the character doesn't know that they're going to gain anything from it, yeah. but they're they're deceived in a in a positive way, I guess. Into so mm-hmm. he was tricked into going into this pond that would make him well again. Yeah. Uh, and the lesson is that you don't do it for your own reasons. You do it mm-hmm. to be selfless. Yeah. And in return, you get something for it. And that, that all that all ties into this movie's idea that it's not about not dying. It's not about what you can get. It's about what you do. It's about how you live your life. It's a very Dead Poets Society <laughs> yeah. lesson, right? Like, yeah. we're all dead poets. We're all going to die. The Green Knight is coming for us all. It doesn't matter. Like... There's so many readings. Like I would love to see. I, I one of the other things that that really occurred to me in watching this movie was, um, I'd love to see Miyazaki do a Green Knight animated movie because he's all about you know the environment sort of striking back and stuff like that. Yeah, I think wow. it'd be some very cool stuff because I love the idea that like whatever you levy against the natural world, right? Like the Green Knight's game is land whatever strike you want on me, and you know Gawain could have just like cut him on the cheek or something but he's a young brash boy and he cuts his head off and he's like i'll i'll do the same to you in a year's time and i love the idea like you'd read into that as the natural world is whatever we're doing to the earth right now the earth will be okay we will eventually be wiped off of it because of what we're doing to it like climate climate change global warming is just like the white blood cells coming out and they're just going to burn us off the earth the earth's still going to be here so i i like that reading of the green knight as well it's um, like that Mark Wahlberg movie, The Happening. <laughs> we'll put in the audio clip here of him. Uh... Look, I don't know if you guys have heard about this article in the New York Times about honeybees vanishing. 
Well, apparently, honeybees are disappearing all over the country. Tens of millions of them just disappearing. There's no bodies, no sign of them. They're just mysteriously gone. It's scary, huh? What about the bees? <laughs> no, not about, like, about the bees. The, the one where he's, he's like lying to the old lady and it's the worst lie you've ever seen. He's like, Planning on stealing something? No, ma'am, we're not. Plan on murdering me in my sleep? What? No. Right? It's... <laughs> I'll see if I can find that. It's clip. it's a bit. It became a bit of a meme because it's among among a, a long history of of Marky Mark's acting. It's a it's a real low point. How high can my voice go? <laughs> Pretty high. Uh, so this is this is a legit tangent. I actually I can't remember when I when I got from the Green Knight to Miyazaki to Mark Wahlberg. But well, there's a couple things I did want to talk about before we do exit the scene. Yep. Uh, Chief among them being this first sighting of the fox. I think that that's an important part because mm-hmm. we there's a fox that reappears a few times in the film that kind of is his companion, his traveling partner, and in the end the fox does actually speak to him, mm-hmm. mind you, after some mushrooms too. But mm-hmm. uh, in this scene is the first time we see this CGI fox appear, uh, done by Weta Digital, who mm-hmm. we are usually really big fans of. I do have a couple quips about this particular it's a job. bag in this one. Yeah, there's a couple decent shots of like the. I think they got the motion of the fox pretty good. Mm. I like the way it moves. I like its little sort of trot. Yeah, right? they got and the trot it's right. It's but almost the, always lighting. But the look and the yeah. fur, it just it doesn't, doesn't always work. work. And like, that was one of the things in that hour long documentary. They show you a lot of like them moving, sort of like they made a model right, and they move right. it through the environment with one of those big mirror balls and one of those like paint swatches so you get all your reference points of yeah. lighting in the environment to use and that based off of my you know watching everything corridor crew puts out that's how you do that kind of thing but i don't know totally. if it's a 50 million dollar budget right you only have so much time to to work on the on the fine lighting and how it hits every little thread of fur and whether the fox is wet and whether it's raining if it's dry what amount of shadow it's in like they painted themselves into a real corner with that mm-hmm. first time you that they actually interact with the fox because it's at a fire it's like a like a big roaring fire and mm-hmm. you got to light the fox for dark bright fire i mean the movie did not hold anything back showing the fox like yeah. they showed the fox probably way more than they even needed to and mm-hmm. probably exactly as much as they planned the problem is just in the execution mm-hmm. for for me and my uh, sense of my sense of disbelief mm-hmm. was raised during those scenes, and yeah. that always upsets me in a movie that I'm I'm feeling very uh, in tune with at the yeah. time. And then you get that fox breaking it up every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's important, though. Yeah, we first see the fox here, yeah. and the fox becomes a companion. You know, and whether it whether you want to say it's Morgan Le Fay's agent or it's his subconscious, and he's he's just continually on a trip because he ate deadly mushrooms. Right, like it, it plays this great counterpart of more than once. I think basically offering him an out, like yeah. in a key scene, yeah. offering him being like allowing him one last chance to be like, you don't have to do this. Like, you do not have to face your doom. When obviously, like the the lesson is you should. But, yeah, um, yeah. Fox is an important character, and uh, this is the first he comes up from the from the pond. And, and it's there on the shore. Just already chilling there. Yeah. Which I, I, you know, now you got me thinking about it. Maybe this has also something to do with the whole perseverance angle that he takes upon himself after mm-hmm. after emerging from the pond with Winifred's head. Well, yeah. Yeah, like, the and the fox is there from there on. Like, it sort of joins him at the midpoint. And, like, I do think it's very important whether you want to say Morgan Le Fay was worried for her son and sort of gave him a last plea to say you can come home and you can be with me with this fox or if she's saying he needs to turn down the chance to be a coward one more time right it's which either way you want to take it or the other 40 ways you could interpret it right it's interesting that lowry chose this to be the way he used the fox though because i did Mm -hmm. hear that the fox is in the original text yeah the original poem but not in this way it's simply brought in when uh the lord of that manor who's mm-hmm. played by uh, joel edgerton in this yeah. film uh gives like it's like the third the thing that he catches or something yeah where he he gives essentially him in the poem like he expects to be given the girdle in exchange for the fox and gawain hides the girdle because he's afraid of death 
mm-hmm. like so many of us. Yes. And instead exchanges uh, some kisses. And I believe <laughs> in the original text, the Lord is the Green Knight. He is. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like, Lowry made a, a, a handful of changes, like Morgan Le Fay's sort of big. relation and... and um, agency in this story the saint winifred thing none of it the scene that we're talking about today was in the original poem and yeah in the original poem the lord was the green knight the green knight was literally just like a guy in in armor with like green accents right he wasn't yeah not like this tree um i but so winifred was not in the original text but holywell was yes he he goes go and travels through holywell so once again this is interesting information just because now we can understand a bit how lowry looked at the original text and kind of transported it into this Mm -hmm. screenplay which i think all these decisions that i've heard from the that were different from the original text are for the movie's benefit Mm -hmm. in my opinion yeah well yeah i think the the best example i'd say of a great change is the design of the green knight it's iconic it's something like that's like you see that in the trailer and that gets you in there rather than, I mean, there's like a 76 or 77 or 78 production of this where it is just like a dude, right? In like a green green knight's armor and he gets beheaded and he, you know, he laughs at him and says, okay, I'll see you in a year, right? But uh, the, the, the idea to make him sort of this walking representation of nature is just so, it draws you in. It's such a great hook. Well, the sound, um, the, yeah. the ambience oh, yeah. the of, sound around design the green of, of him moving. Right, um, and now like, we're jumping too far. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. That that seems great. Um, <laughs> yeah, everything about the Green Knight uh, was practical for this film as well. So mm-hmm. uh, I know we're not dwelling on him too much in this se- for the scene breakdown, but it is worth noting uh, the design of the creature, the design production design of the film is worth the price of admission in itself. Yeah, and if you miss this in theaters, like I said, the Blu-ray cut is fantastic. Yep. Try and get yourself a transfer of that. Tim, where is it available? Uh, I mean, I got mine through uh, Sunrise Records here in in Canada. Right on. Um, but uh, you know, I without a doubt, like where you find Blu-rays normally, like it's not, it's not like a deep cut Blu-ray or anything. But it also hasn't had any special editions out. I don't think because this is the this is the most recent movie we've ever done on the podcast. Like this is the quickest interval, right? Other than other than, other Dune. than Dune, yeah. Dune, but that was a mini. That was a bite-sized episode. Right. Remember, it was just like fifteen minutes. Yeah, just a little bite. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So for this one, I'd say, I don't know if you have much else, but I just want to point out there are a couple dangling threads and maybe that's the best way to wrap this up is to say we had a number of threads in this discussion. It's not an easily digest or discuss movie because you can always start drawing from other scenes. It's tough to fit into our format, but you know, Winifred mentions her father and you know, when, when her head is on the floor and it's speaking to him, it's saying, I'll strike you down with every care I have for you. And you know, the green Knight. these things that are never really touched upon again, they're left there for you to interpret. Yeah. Like so much of this movie. And you can see, like, we've got tons of notes. We had some plans in mind for how this episode was going to go. And it came out a little bit, a little bit more of a winding road. It's a little bit more the journey than the destination. That's so right. As they always fits. are, Tim. Yeah. We got our notes and yeah, yeah. we're prepared, but... Mm-hmm. It never goes that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's why you picked the scene. Uh, it's a nice little, I, I think, like an ideal SSC scene. It's a one part that can tell you a lot about the whole. And we always try and find scenes that not many people are talking about online. You can go online and find all kinds of interpretations of the Green Knight. Mm-hmm. So many people have surprisingly put out content on a film that I consider to be too artsy or mm-hmm. too outside of people's, you know, what they would see in a theater. But a lot of people have seen this movie and a lot of people have written about it and done videos on it. So go check them out. Uh, Just, I think the most important takeaway from all of it is that Lowry didn't intend for any hard readings of this. There's no right answer. There's no right answer. So interpret the text as you will. Yeah, there's no right answer. There are a couple wrong answers. There are a couple videos on YouTube that are like, here's where art house goes wrong or, you know, too pretentious. I just, I Why think, is this movie cinema? I saw. I think it, I didn't watch that it's one. It's just bad faith stuff where it's like it didn't make it clear enough. So it's not a good movie. I if you have never really dug into movies like this or the other ones we talked about or if Inception sort of stuck in your craw, I'd say this is a great opportunity to uh to dig into this movie and just see what sticks with you because if nothing else it's great to look at 
and I do think it's a lesson about facing death um, in the eye is uh, is it, it applies to all of us, right? We, we, we're all going to die. So on that really happy note, uh, Tay, what's your shout out? Wait, we didn't do the tagline. Oh my goodness. Well, we'll do the tagline before the shout outs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the tagline, I mean, honestly, I'm not super down on it i don't feel like it, I, it let's just rip like on it for five let's rip on it for 20 seconds yeah when honor was everything when courage made kings that doesn't feel representative it, it is like when, it, it when i saw you posted that was the tagline yeah. on our on our notes i it's was applicable i was blown away though because i was like that's definitely not lowry's decision lowry did not <laughs> that's it not how been, he wanted to sell this i movie. think there would have been like a joke or something cheeky in it right like i don't i don't think it would like that just feels like they gave it to a marketing firm and they're like, what's it about? It's like, well, it's about like facing death and, you know, being okay with this it, stuff. It tells and, you, you know. a bit about how they were trying to sell the movie, though, yeah. as more of a, a night's quest. Which, again, like, you know, mismarketing has killed so many good movies. So many good movies. And I mean, briefly touching on that budget and box office, this movie made a little bit more than it was made for. And I don't think anyone cares like i don't think a24 cares i think the fact like the achievement is here here is that it was made yes i don't think a24 like, is gonna ride this well movie for a long time it didn't make a hundred mil domestic you know it didn't it didn't break any records i don't think anyone was looking for that i think this this movie itself is the value and a24 and lowry can can trade in on this credit for a while i agree yeah and now I'll move into the shout out. Yeah. Um, very brief, quick shout out. I just want to call out the crown design of this film because I thought the crowns were so unique mm-hmm. and visually for for a film at least perfect for kind of casting lighting, shadow, um, conveying that sense of tradition of um, old Christian artwork. Yeah, it's like illuminated text. Yeah, like right? Where you give when you have halo. the halos around people's heads, but, but it was always drawn as basically like yeah. a very two-dimensional yeah. circle. And this feels like it has that vibe, but it's only like the half circle. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, there's just something about the perforations and the way that it looks on Dev Patel's it's just, skull. It's beautiful. It looks so heavy, right? It yeah. looks so physical. Dense. Um, and and I love like you see it in all these permutations. You see it on King Arthur, and then you see it like Dev Patel being crowned in like the ceremonial uh, sort of like uh, setting, but also like wearing it to battle, right? Like over over the chainmail, and like those dark red posters with like the characters sort of like looking three quarters away. Yeah. With Dev Dev's got the what a look those posters on. have so iconic. Yeah, right. Like that's one of the things that like it was it was the Green Knight. And those posters really stuck with you. It was a great, it, like it was just it's such an easy marketing campaign, like such a gimme. Um, yeah, the design was fantastic. Clearly Christmas targeted. Oh yeah, that it's a red. Christmas movie. I don't know. I don't get what people. <laughs> yeah, I don't know say, why they say it's not. Who, a Christmas who movie. out there with this in their feed is grumbling about it? But, um, <laughs> How about you, Tim? What's your shout out? Uh, my shout out is uh, Sean Harris because why not? I just I I love him to death. He's I realize like. It, He's just become one of my favorite guys of late. Uh, he's the only returning Mission Impossible villain ever. I realized he plays like the rock and roll geologist in uh, Prometheus, yep. which is so funny. Um, and I recently I caught Spencer in theaters, the Kristen Stewart Diana movie. Oh, okay, yeah, he yeah. plays the head of the cooking staff in that, who's cooking for the royal family. And he's just he's always good. He's always killing it. And this is no, this is no exception. He's. He plays what I assume, and like for my own experience, it's definitely true. Just a rarely seen Arthur. He's old and he's frail. Never see this version of Arthur. And he's he's yeah. warm. Like I love like yeah. The warmth was the not even the fact that he's old. It's just yeah. the actual that he's like a warm, mm-hmm. good king. He's not like an old figure. like battle worn, crusty king who doesn't no. like anyone. Like I like the part of the impetus for this story is him saying apologizing to Gawain on Christmas day for saying, I haven't taken the time to get to know you. You're my nephew. It's so fatherly. I really, I love it. And then there are other scenes in this. If you, I'll, I'll add a little bit to your, to your plate here, Tay, but if you could cut in the scene where he's, he's, he's got his, his sore tooth. My tooth hurts. The 
the line reading from from Sean Harris on on sort of belly aching about his tooth. I I love it to death. Um, I think it's just such a great performance in this. And uh, yeah, with that, one of two Christmas movies down. The next one, uh, as you all voted, is Home Alone. So that's going to be out in two weeks. Um, and then after that, we're looking at, we've got one more that's going to come out in December and we have something a little bit different planned. It won't be on a movie. So no homework over the holidays, you know, do your thing, eat a lot, watch the normal movies you, you would and, uh, and just keep an eye out for that episode. Yeah. It'll be a, an extra special new year's treat for y'all. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it to the surprise. And then, uh, yeah. And then like always, we'll uh, wrap up with some recommendations. What do you got, Tay? Uh, the movie I'm going to recommend today is called The Devil's Backbone or El Espinazo del Diablo. And this is by Guillermo del Toro. It's from 2001. It stars Marissa Peredi and Eduardo Noriega. Uh, I love Guillermo del Toro, and this is probably my second favorite of his films. Yeah. I think it pairs nicely with The Green Knight because it is so much about myth, mm-hmm. but the love that these two filmmakers have for their craft and the ability to tell stories about ghosts and fantasy elements like these uh there's a connection between del toro and lowry in that sense and if you are familiar with any of del toro's work whether it be pan's labyrinth or pacific rim i think the devil's backbone has plenty of good horror good suspense and uh, cultural context to make it like a very valuable viewing there is so much more to it than just being a story about a ghost mm-hmm. so uh that's my recommendation this week check out some yes. guillermo uh so my recommendation i'm not doing a movie this week i was tempted to just say monty python and the holy grail because <laughs> it's a nice counterpoint but um something actually you know that you might not have seen there's a great um YouTube film critic creator uh, named Captain Christian, who is a top tier sort of visual editor. Like his movie, his his videos are really like the way that they're presented is is their biggest strength. But he often finds a nice angle on something too. And he was prolific for for a while, a couple years ago, and then his output really went down, which is fine. Um, but just recently, he surprised put out a video called "The Invisible Horror of the Shining." Uh, it's like a 10 minute video and I've seen the shining a lot. I think I often pay attention to music a lot in movies. I think it's, it's usually on my radar. So many things I did not realize were going on in the shining and how the music was edited into it to directly track the dialogue. Right. So there are even points where, when, you know, Jack Torrance is asking Danny a question, when he asks the question, the music goes up like your like your intonation does in your in in your sentence and then when Danny answers it goes back down and the wild thing is that they when they were filming this none of this was planned this was all done after the fact and also not with newly composed music the music director found pre-composed classical and atonal and uh, like 12 tone 20th century compositions that fit into the editing of the movie you know it's impressive for the composer and the mm. composition in general, mm. but it's almost more of like not that he needs to be pumped up anymore, but Stanley Kubrick, yeah, Kubrick and the, and like, the editing, the yeah. fact that yeah. his editing can be that rhythmically mm. correct. Yeah. There is, you know, you can edit in all kinds of different ways. You don't have to edit to a pace, mm-hmm. but naturally, a good editor has like a sense of rhythm, timing, and pacing. Mm. And the way Kubrick must have had that movie laid out for the composer, it must have that like. The fact that it all lines up the way it does. It, it, it's wow. insane just what was going on there that obviously it makes it a part of the experience. It's it's how you're watching it when all these beats like Jack Torrance like like hitting hitting his big stack of drafts and there's a big sort of sort of hit and things like that. He gives you all these examples and if you haven't seen this guy's stuff, he's got lots of great film criticism, but he also talks about comics and TVs and, and TV shows and stuff like that. It's a great channel. So uh, yeah, check it out. And yeah, the name of that channel is Captain Christian uh, with K's. But uh, we'll link it right in the show notes. Uh, definitely go check out his stuff. And if we're lucky, maybe he'll get back onto a, a semi-regular production schedule. Right on. I'm going to check that one out myself. That sounds awesome. And uh, otherwise, as always, love it if you would review us on iTunes. Please email. review. Yeah. Choose an email at sscpod at gmail.com. If you have questions, your own thoughts, please engage with us on Instagram. When we post about an episode, if you thought we should do a different scene in this movie if you preferred the giant scene or 
a scene with Elisa Vikander or with Joel Edgerton, let us know or let us know what you thought of this one. This one really is up for debate, so I'm I'm thinking we may even open the polls a bit when we drop this episode. But uh, trust me, we wanted to do anything with Alicia Vikander and Joel Edgerton in it too, but this yeah. scene was the most fitting for what yeah. we wanted to talk about as a whole. So we could talk about this for five hours, and we're we're on our way there, but we got we got to stop. Yeah, we better cut it here, Jim. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, with that, um, however you practice Christmas, Christmas is coming up. You know, if you wake up in a brothel, that's okay. If you wake up in a castle, that's also okay. And anywhere in between. Yeah.